This morning we'll be in Romans 7, 7 through 25. It's on page 550 and the Bible's provided for you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thank you, Paul. You guys can, yeah, take a seat. One of the most influential thinkers whose thoughts and beliefs are having a profound impact on the church is someone you've probably never heard of. Someone whose books you haven't read and in fact you probably can't even find. Someone who lived 1900 years ago was probably, probably one of the most successful church planters in church history after Paul. Someone who the church actually declared to be a heretic and whose teaching was condemned by more church fathers perhaps than anyone else in history. Someone whose story actually intersects with this church to whom this letter was written. Marcion was born in modern-day Turkey in AD 85, only about 30 years after the letter that Paul was writing to Romans was, was written and delivered. 
He came to the church at Rome around AD 135, so if you're doing the math, that's about 80 years after the church received this letter. And so there could have been, if by chance someone lived long enough, children who heard this letter that Paul is writing that we are reading today, read for the first time at the church in Rome, and also personally knew Marcion. However, after less than 10 years of being in the church of Rome, he was excommunicated. The problem was, the crux of Marcion's heir, if you will, was this. He did not believe the God of the Old Testament could be the God who's described as the father of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Angela Tilby, the author of Heresies and How to Avoid Them, it's a good book, it seems, at least the title's good, said this, for him, that is for Marcion, there was a fundamental contradiction between law and love, righteousness and grace. Marcion thought that true Christianity was flawed by the incompatibilities at the heart of its teaching. His solution was radical. Nothing less than a restatement of faith would do. And for Marcion, that restatement had to focus on what, for him, was the essential gospel, the love, mercy, and compassion displayed in the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, you might hear that and you might say, I'm not sure what you mean, Cody. Do that many people today really believe that we, that the God of the Old Testament is a different person than the God of the New Testament? Do that many people today actually believe that we should cut the Old Testament out of the Bible completely, that we should cut out parts of Luke, that we should cut out some of the epistles that Paul wrote that we have in our Bibles like Marcion did? And not many people actually do that. So what do you mean that he is so influential in the church today. You see, out of the root of Marcion's teaching came all kinds of fruit that we still experience today. And in fact, I will say some of these things are things that I have struggled and wrestled with and have even believed wrongly on in the past and have had to be corrected by God's word in. And so if you hear one of these and you go, ooh, I've kind of thought that before or even now, uh, grace on you, uh, I hope that this is uh, uh, educational in that sense. I hope it's helpful in correction. Some of the fruit that we experience today is things like that the Old Testament isn't quite as important as the New Testament. And, and you know, if you really want to know what's really important in the Bible, you need to read the red letters. That's what's really important. As if there's a special canon inside of the canon, as, as, as if there's some scripture that's more inspired than other scripture. You might hear people say, well, we, we, we shouldn't really talk very much about, or, or at all about wrath and judgment or about the harshness of hell. As if that's only in the Old Testament, as if Jesus' own red letters even didn't talk about those things. But we... We don't want to talk about that as if we can have the gospel and we can have love and mercy and compassion without wrath and judgment. People are mostly good. That's, people will say this. People are mostly good. 
And they have the potential to be within themselves great. And if we would just live like Jesus, if we could just capitalize on that thing that's inside of every human being and they would live like Jesus, then, then we could make heaven on earth, which is a denial of our need for Jesus' death to satisfy the wrath of God for our sinfulness. It's a denial of the reality that we need the Holy Spirit in order to enable us to even do those things. Or maybe people might say, well, God, what God's really about is, is love. It's just love. While we certainly would confirm that God is about love, the problem is that when we, did, when we take out parts of the Bible out, we really have no idea how to define what love is biblically. We have no idea uh, how God loves. Because, we, because while the Old Testament is still in our Bibles, we've deleted it in practice anyways. We've forgotten that the entire New Testament, that Paul and Jesus and Peter and James and John and every New Testament author based their faith and their understanding of the gospel on their understanding of the Old Testament. And so we can't understand the gospel if we don't have the Old Testament as well. See, in the end, what happens is we're left with not the God of the Bible, we're left with the God of our psychological comfort. This God makes me feel good right now, and so I choose him over what the Bible says, which sometimes is great. It's always great, really, in reality, but sometimes it doesn't feel great. You see, last week we found out that through Christ, we've been divorced from the weight of trying to keep the law in order to be right or to be justified before God. This is what we would call legalism, attempting to be right by living up to the standard. And you might have walked away from that, or you might have read that passage, Romans 7, 1 through 6, and at some point, and you might have walked away from it and thought, well, we've been divorced from the law. Do we just unhitch from the Old Testament and all of that stuff then? Is the law, is the Old Testament bad? Is that what Paul is saying? And in fact, Paul anticipates that question. You see, these ideas can lead us into something that is called antinomianism. That might be a new word for you. Or lawlessness. That sin and how we live doesn't matter because God forgives us and loves us. So we don't really have to worry about that so much. We don't have to think about that. Rather than living up to a standard like legalism... An antinomian would bring down the standard to wherever they're living. The problem is that while legalism and antinomianism sound very different on the surface, at their heart, they're actually the exact same. You might say, whoa, that doesn't make sense, Cody. How could they be the exact same? The reason at the heart they're the exact same is because both of them are ways of making myself righteous in myself. Either I'm trying to be righteous in myself by living up to a standard, 
or I'm trying to be righteous in myself by bringing God's standard down to wherever I am. In the same way, I'm trying to achieve the standard on my own. For those who are forgiven, for those who are in Christ, when we struggle with sin, neither legalism nor antinomianism provide the answers we need because when we struggle with sin, as we fall back into legalistic thinking, boy, it's really depressing, isn't it? It's really hard because I'm not living up to the standard. But if we fall into antinomian thinking, deep down we know, because the Holy Spirit's in us and convicting us because we're in Christ, that these things aren't okay. What then is the relationship between us, the believer, and the law, and sin? That's what Paul is trying to address in our passage today. In verses 7 through 13, he's going to differentiate between the law and sin and show us that while they are two different things, we need to understand that without the gospel, sin uses the law to kill us. Without the gospel, sin uses the law to kill us. And then in verses 14 through 25, He's going to describe what our relationship to sin is like as believers. And we'll see that with the gospel, we use the law to kill sin. Do you see what I'm doing there? Without the gospel, sin uses the law to kill us. With the gospel, we use the law to kill sin in our life. So, Paul starts in verse 7 with the question, is the law bad? If, as the previous section ended, if we're to serve the new way of the Spirit and not the written code, is that written code, is the law bad in and of itself? And his answer is quite strong. His answer is, by no means. Exclamation mark, right? Why? Here's what we need to understand about the relationship between the law and sin. The end of verse 7 shows us that the law is, is not sin, But the law enhances our knowledge of sin. Romans has told us that even those who don't know the law, even those who were Gentiles, it said, who didn't uh, grow up with, you know, the law, didn't have their parents teaching it to them, didn't have it accessible, didn't whatever, go to to synagogue or, or, or whatnot. Their hearts still convicted them of sin. There's a sense in which They knew right and wrong. However, the law made that very, very clear, right? It defines it. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're talking about very specific and clear uh, outlines for what is right and wrong. Sin is sin whether you know it expressly or not, right? But when you do know what is sin... That makes the sins that we commit even more egregious or heinous, right? We, we would say that uh, as parents of our kids, if our kids do something wrong, they don't know that it's wrong, 
like we haven't expressly told them don't do this and they do it, they're still getting in trouble for doing it. However, if we have expressly told them do not do that and then they do it still, their punishment is worse and rightfully so. Paul here, he uses coveting as an example. It's, it's not as if coveting wasn't bad before God wrote it on a stone tablet, right? It's the 10th commandment. It was always the law, so to speak. But God made it clear in the law. He made it clear when he wrote it in stone. This is all really most clearly seen in coveting because any of the first nine of the commandments, uh, I, could, I could fake living them out, right? I could pretend to be like honoring to my parents when my heart's not really honoring to them. I could pretend to uh, make God first in my life when God's not really first in my life and so on and so forth. So many of the commandments that you could kind of fake it if you want it on the outside while having a sinful heart. But coveting has everything to do with the condition of our heart, right? The law doesn't invent sin. The law puts its finger on our hearts, and it turns out, friends, our hearts aren't very good. Turns out that with, without Christ, our hearts are actually quite bad, quite rebellious. That's why It says in verse 10 that it promised life, the law promised life, but instead it proved to be death. If our hearts had been prone to obedience, then the knowledge, the specific knowledge of what is right and wrong would have enabled us to be even more obedient, right? But because our hearts are bad, because our hearts by default are rebellious, knowledge just showed us more ways to be disobedient. Let me give you an example. Almost everyone has something that when people do it, drive them up, it drives them up the wall, right? Do you have something that when people do that thing, it absolutely drives you back crazy? Anyone? Anyone got one of the, something like that? I've got like probably more than I should, okay? Now, do you tell people what those things are? You see, telling someone is a risk-reward proposition, isn't it? right? Because if you tell them, hey, hey, when you do that, that just, man, it really drives me crazy. Like, I can't take that sound or I can't take that uh, whatever. There's a chance that with that knowledge, they will work to no longer do that thing, right? There's a, there's a chance that might happen. But there's also a very likely chance that they will take that knowledge and systematically drive you crazy, Right? Oh, you don't like it when I leave the drawers open in the, in the dresser? Okay, you know, I'll just leave it open just a little bit. Oh, you don't like it when I uh, uh, make that sound? Well, all right, the most inopportune time, I'm going to make that sound. So they might do that thing even more. And that, and that leads us to the second way that the law relates to sin. You see, verse 8 tells us that the law is not sin, but the law stimulates our sin. It causes us to sin more. How so? You see, there's another reason I think that Paul uses covetousness 
as an example here. I don't think it's random. I don't think that Paul just kind of snatched one of the Ten Commandments and threw it in there like nonchalantly. I think it's very specific that he's using coveting here. At the end of the day, what you and I covet most is this. We covet God. We covet God's position. We want to be God instead. We want to be our own God. We want to make our own rules. It all started in Genesis 3, did it not? We want to say what's right and wrong. The the serpent tempts him. Hey, no, you decide what's right and wrong. You could be like God. We want to be sovereign. And we see this in our rebellious kids, right? Or if you were the rebellious kid, maybe you can look back and you can see this in yourself. When you have a rebellious kid, they may, if you didn't, don't say anything, they may by chance, by coincidence, do what they ought to do. But if you make it a rule, if you tell them, hey, you have to do this, you need to do this, they'll invent all sorts of ways to do the opposite, won't they? They'll invent all sorts of workarounds They'll dissect your words in such a way that technically they're following it, but in reality, they're not actually doing what you ask them to do. You say to them, hey, take those dishes out of the dishwasher, and they sit them all on the countertop. And you ask, why didn't you put the dishes away like I asked? And they say, well, you didn't ask me to put the dishes away. You asked me to take them out of the dishwasher. Now, you know what I meant. (laughs) What in the world? That's what Silas does. Puts them on the counter but he can't reach most of where the dishes goes. It's okay. So in verses eight and nine, when it tells us apart from the law, sin lies dead, he doesn't mean ultimately dead. He's he's been clear that those without the law still sin. But by comparison, sin was dormant before the law. But when the law came, sin enhanced, sin was enhanced Sin was stimulated in humanity because our problem at the core isn't the rule itself. It's not the law itself. Our problem is that we covet self-rule. Our problem is we want to rule ourselves, but in reality, we can't. He caps it all with verses 12 through 13. He says, verse 12, he says, he makes it clear. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. I mean, you can't be more explicit than that, right? It's the opposite of evil or sin. It's it's holy, righteous, and good because it reflects the character of a holy and righteous and good God. And then verse 13, so did this good thing produce death? Paul says, no, sin is what produces death. The law merely revealed sin to be what it is. And sin took that opportunity to breed more sin in us because our hearts are rebellious and sinful before Christ, period. It's true of everyone. It's true of you and it's true of me. To put it simply, the problem isn't in the law, but in us. It's like when someone says, this XYZ technology it's trash. It never works how it's supposed to. Blah, 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 blah. That's what, they, that's what people say sometimes. And then you take a look at it, right? You come and go, oh, let me see that. 
and you do whatever you're supposed to do with it, and it works fine. And they respond, well, that's weird. It never works for me. And then my response is always, yeah, yeah, it, it must have been a user error. Because the problem isn't with the technology. The problem is that with the person using said technology. So, when, uh, so then why have the law? Why not just not have it? And at least we would reduce sin, right? Like that, there's some logic to that. Well, because sin would still exist and people would still go to hell. The, big, the point here is, is this. The law reveals our need for the gospel. We look at the law and we go, I can't live up to that. I need someone else to do this for me. By showing us the standard more clearly, it not only reveals that we fail, but it makes it clear that our sinfulness is so great as we fail all the more. The law, the law isn't bad or sinful. It's a mirror that shows us that we are bad and sinful. So what are we to do then as believers with the law? Well, before I jump into that, I want to have just a brief intermission, and I want to say that there is a debate amongst very intelligent Christian scholars over this next section. And, and there are at least three major interpretations of, of how we should look at these next verses, 15 through, or 14 through 25. The first option is that Paul is talking about unbelievers here those who are outside of the gospel and most likely the Jewish people under the law before they know Christ. So that's, that's option number one. The second option is Paul is describing the spiritually immature, those who, who are not very mature in their faith. Uh, maybe they're, they're uh, still coming to faith. They're in the process of coming to faith or, or right after they've come to faith. So we've got unbeliever, immature believer. And then the third option and the one that I agree with is that Paul is describing himself and other mature Christians who, while they believe the gospel and they understand it, they still find themselves sinning at times. So, so those are the three. I'm sure that there's some other people who have some kind of minority opinions on that, but those are the three major interpretations of who Paul is talking about here. And, that, and who you believe he's talking about makes a big difference in how you approach these verses, Okay. The significant evidence, just briefly, for why I take the view that I take, a few things. Paul, first off, shifts from the past tense in verses 7 through 13 to the present tense in verses 15 through 25. And so it would seem then, or what would be plain, most plain is that he's talking about before Christ, previously under the law without Christ, in verses 7 through 13, and he's talking about right now, present, believing in verses 15 through 25. Another reason is that this person that he's referring to wants to do right. This person understands the extent of his depravity, both of which Paul has previously said are not possible outside of faith in Christ. The person who does not know Christ, who is not in Christ, who, who the Holy Spirit has not regenerated their heart, cannot wants to do right, really. Cannot understand the extent of their depravity. Galatians 5, 17 
seems to say almost the exact same thing as this passage says, and no one disputes Galatians 5.17 is about Christians. There's another evidence. Another evidence in Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians, Paul uses similar uh, outer self, inner self language that he's going to use here, as well as talking about believers' minds being renewed as he will in this passage. And so that's another evidence. And lastly, the conclusion of verses 24 and 25 seem inseparable from each other. And in verse 25, he is most definitely describing a post-conversion experience. And so for those reasons, I take the view that Paul is talking particularly about himself and other believers who, knowing full well, believing full well the gospel, still struggle with sin at times. And if you are like me, then you know the gospel and believe the gospel and still at times struggle with sin. All that to say, if you don't agree with my presupposition that this is talking about believers, then you may not agree with some of the conclusions and applications that I draw. And so I would ask uh, first for grace in that, understanding that there are people way more intelligent than me that believe all three of these interpretations. Second, I think, I think the conclusions that I will draw here even if this isn't what Paul is trying to say here, are things that Paul says other places and are still true, like Galatians 5, 17. So, with all that, with my intermission out of the way, here is the question. What is our relationship to sin and the law as believers? If legalism doesn't work, and if antinomianism isn't the answer, how do we understand the sin that still plagues us at times? And here's the answer. With the gospel, we use the law. We can use the law to kill sin. To understand this, we need to understand three realities that Paul's going to describe in these verses, in verses 14 through 23. We need to understand the reality of our true state in Christ, we need to understand the reality of our indwelling sin. And we need to understand the reality of the ongoing conflict that those two things relate, uh, uh, create, I should say. The reality of our true state in Christ, the reality of our indwelling sin, and then the conflict that those two things create. What does this passage say about our true state in Christ? Paul starts in verse 14 by declaring that the law is spiritual, as opposed to how we will see him describe sin that remains in our life as fleshly and unspiritual. But this statement may confuse someone, right, who remembers that in 7, 6, in Romans 7, verse 6, that this whole section is prefaced with, with, he says, we live by the Spirit, not the written code. How then can the law be spiritual? Because he now understands the law in the light of the gospel. When we look at the law in the light of the gospel, when we look at the law after Christ has done that work in us to bring us to faith in him through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, now we can see the law rightly and it is truly good and, and spiritual. It is uh, helpful to us as we live by the Spirit. 
When we rely on our our ability to obey the law and believe that that can save us, it manifests sin in our hearts and is opposed to the gospel. But when we rely on the Spirit and believe that only Christ saves us, it helps us to see the law for what it truly is, the standard by which the Spirit is conforming us. To put it another way, we depend on the Spirit to fuel or empower our life while the Spirit uses the law to provide the GPS or the roadmap for how we ought to live. And so, the person who says, you just need the Spirit, not the Bible, misunderstands how the Spirit does his work. But the person who says, you just need the Bible, not the Spirit, misunderstands how we are able to live out or do that work. Both are part of God's sovereign plan. And so in verses 18 through 22, we get these phrases that describe the inner self, the heart of a believer, the the, the true heart of the believer. In verse 18, it says he wants to do good. He doesn't want to do evil. In verse 21, he wants to do right. In verse 22, he delights in God's law even. Far from throwing it aside, he actually loves it. He describes the God Because it describes the God who loves and saves us. It's good for me. It's good for my life. Obedience to God's word has made me uncomfortable at times, I'm going to admit. Obedience to God's word has made me uncomfortable at times. Obedience to God's word has been quite inconvenient in my life at times. I don't know about you. Has it ever been inconvenient for you? You can confess that. However, disobedience to God's word has caused significant damage in my life, always. In verse 20, when he does this evil, when we do this evil, it doesn't represent who we truly are in Christ. Even though we delight in God's law, sometimes we don't like something in it. Sometimes I come to God's word and I go... I don't, I don't like that truth. There's some indwelling sin in me that comes in conflict with that truth, that reality that I see in Scripture, and I don't like that. It frustrates us, so we just disobey. That's the sin that remains. That's what is indwelling sin. Though we've been justified for the penalty of sin... And we've been freed from the power of sin. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That is, we can choose now not to sin, and yet there is still the presence of sin in our life. Even though God has transferred us and continues to, or even though God has transformed us, sorry, and continues to do that, there is sin that still dwells in us in this life. And that's what we call indwelling sin. Paul says, I am of the flesh. There's part of our life that is unspiritual and sinful, just as the law is spiritual. This flesh side leads us to do things that the true self doesn't want to do or doesn't understand. Have you ever sinned? Wanting in that moment to do that thing? And afterwards, being just utterly confused and disgusted with yourself? Has that ever happened? in the moment, your desire for that thing just overwhelms you and you, and you go after it. And then afterwards, 
you go, that was so unsatisfying. And I don't, why would I even do that? And that's just like, just, I, I disgust myself. Even though ultimately his true self is not under sin's dominion, it's as if this part of him is sold under sin again. The presence of sin has not been removed. Verse 16 says that he doesn't want to do it. If he truly, truly wants or wills to abide by God's standard, then it shows that he's a believer. And yet, he does what he doesn't want to do. In that way, Paul says in verse 17 that it is no longer I, not his true state in Christ, who does these things, but the indwelling sin at work in him. Now, first reading, it may appear that Paul is trying to excuse himself of the responsibility for his own sin, but that's not what he means. He only means that there's another factor at play in this equation than just him and the law. There is his indwelling sin as well. And so there's this ongoing conflict that happens. Verse 21, I find it to be a law. Here he's using law in a more general sense, like a principle or a rule of life. That when I do right, evil lies close at hand. The question, do I want Jesus or do I want sin? That question is settled for the believer, right? We want Jesus. We want to do right, but the conflict isn't over. The conflict continues. Though he delights in the law in his inner being, the deepest part of his heart, he delights in the law. There's another law. There's another power, authority at work in his life as well. Sin that's not sin that's not outside of the, the house of his heart, forcing him to do what he does not want. It's sin that's inside, still influencing him to disobedience. No longer controlling us, but at conflict with us. We can, with God's help, clean house. I want you to know that. You can, with the power of the Holy Spirit, with God's help, clean house. We can win the fight one round at a time. Causes Paul to cry out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And and this isn't despair. I I don't want you to, to get this wrong. It's not despair but it is emphatic. The emphasis isn't because he lacks hope, but because he knows the one who is his hope. Paul asks the question, knowing what his response is. This is why he doesn't despair. He does have a deliverer. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You see, the more we look upon Christ, the more we grow to be like him, the more our sin appears sinful. I want you to understand that. The more you grow in Christ, the more you understand about who he is and what he's done for you, the more that your sin will look sinful. And there'll be sins in your life that you didn't even think about that you didn't even realize were there. That as you come to know God, as you come to know his character, his character will reveal your heart and you will see sin that you never saw before. 
wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit and the way he works is, is he, doesn't, he doesn't necessarily open our eyes to all of it at once. I think if he opened our eyes to all of it at once, we'd be so overwhelmed, we'd just like fall over, pass out or die or something. But he reveals it to us as we know him so that he can clean the house out. See, our sin and the sin in the world brings us sorrow, but it doesn't bring despair. A friend uh, reminded me of the words of J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. He says, in sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than a memory. One day, we will be with Christ forever, glorified, the presence of sin gone. Right now, we continue in a conflict with our indwelling sin, but it is not a conflict that leads us to despair. So the conflict carries on, we know it's not forever. And even here and now, we're not without hope because the Spirit is effective. And so why not agree with Marcion to some degree? Because the problem isn't the law. The problem isn't the Old Testament. As theologian Michael Horton puts it, he says, while the scriptures uphold the moral law as the abiding way of life for God's redeemed people, it can never be a way to life. There's a big difference there. If we use the law as a way to life, we get death because we fail. But if we don't use the law as a way of life, we become a living death. We live this life in Christ while allowing death to exist in us. But if we are alive in Christ, we can use the law, the scriptures, as a way of life for us. So then the law is like a mirror. And a mirror is a great and a, a terrible thing, right? A mirror can show you that your hair is messed up or you've got something on your shirt. Uh, we can also look in the mirror and begin to think all sorts of things about ourselves. If we look at, to a mirror to find our worth in what we see in the mirror, then a mirror can be either a source of pride or a source of despair, depending on whether we feel like we're living up to the standard or not. We use the mirror to look at the externals to define who we are at the core. You're setting yourself up for all kinds of problems. Is the solution then to throw away all the mirrors in your house? By no means. Because a mirror can be an incredibly useful thing, can it not? What I see in, in it may not define who I am at the core, but it can help me to be all that I was created to be. If I know who I am first, the mirror can help me to see how well I'm presenting in the externals, the reality that's in the internal. To put it another way, my wife loves me 
for me, right? My wife loves me no matter what, but when we're going to go on a date, she prefers it if I use a mirror first. She'd like me to present myself as the person she knows I am. The mirror of God's law isn't good for making us God's children. It's not good for that purpose. It's not a problem with the mirror, right? It's not like... It's not like it's a carnival mirror distorting who we are. The problem is in us. The problem is without Christ, we are a mess. And that should make us look to him. But when we look in the mirror of the law now, in Christ, things don't look how we ought, how we want them to be because we love God and we love his word and we love his law and we love to be a reflection of him, we cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.